Welcome everyone back to the broadcast. I'm David Woods from Bruin Report Online, the UCLA site on the 24-7 Sports Network, and I am joined on this lovely December day, this beautiful December day, by Tracy Pearson. Tracy, how are you? Hi, Dave. I am good. How are you out there in Atlanta? I'm doing splendidly. Can't complain. I have my health. That's um, nice. You know, it just started to rain here in the Los Angeles area. We're experiencing our first real weather mm. Mm. in in your lifetime. <laughs> well, you know, that just throws Southern Californians into just a complete tizzy. Yeah. Well, it's a, it's a, it's a good 40 degrees here. Um, so that's nice. We like that. It's been really cold here too, Dave. You would not get any relief if you lived out here right now. It's no. still, it's very, it's very unseasonably cold. That's great. Yeah. I mean, it's like, it's going to get to 60 today. frigid um well if we're taking the temperature of the ucla football program right now wait pause let that let that segue just sink in that was pretty good that was good you know i tried i got there Uh, it's uh it's uh, what is the temperature of a morgue oh now damn (laughs) like do they keep that below freezing where do they keep that wow you just you you wow you just like took a big swing like at the first pitch i really did i really did i don't Uh, know i can't answer that you're gonna have to answer your own question yeah i'll I'll look it up while we're talking um okay so ucla finished the season four and eight um that's uh well it was obviously the worst case scenario after their three game winning streak um when we were like nah there's they're they're probably not finishing four and eight at this point they're four and five probably going to beat cal might even beat usc uh but no they finished uh four and eight and effectively got well they got absolutely smoked off the field by utah then they got more or less blown out by usc i know it technically wasn't but they were never coming close to that team after they failed on a couple of drives in the first half so i'll call that one a blowout and losing by 10 to Cal is like losing by 50 to somebody. So I'm going to call it three straight blowouts to end the year. <laughs> I'm just, I, you know what? I think I should just sit back and listen to you talk in, on, <laughs> in this podcast because I know you know how to touch some of these things. Okay, keep going. Keep going. All right. I'll so like- while, while, while you were talking, I looked it up and um, bodies are kept <laughs> between 36 and 39 degrees Fahrenheit. So just a little bit above freezing. Okay. So yeah, that, you you don't want your body in the morgue to freeze. That would be kind of hard to work with, I think. Yeah, this is usually used for keeping bodies for up to several weeks, but it does not prevent decomposition, which continues though at a slower rate than at room temperature. You know, everyone comes to these broadcasts thinking they're going to learn something, and they probably never do. But this time they did. Yeah, I really think they did, and I'm glad for them. Um, okay, so uh, UCLA football very bad, obviously. Um, but I thought it might behoove everyone out there if we kind of went into the details about why this is so bad, why it continues to be so bad, why the three-game winning streak is now feeling even more like a mirage. Um, Because coming out of it, I thought, you know, hey, this defense, if they kind of figure out how to play with this, it could work. Um, And then it it very obviously didn't. Um, Now, some of that might have been USC receiver talent and so on, but um, they looked awful against Cal's offense, so... Not entirely that, um, but I kind of wanted to just go in through through the details at this point, um, kind of do a post mortem, as it were. Damn, I think we have our theme. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I think we have the title. 
Um, you're you're not going to make a title list with using the word morgue. No, no, no. It'll be mortem. Oh, post you know, litem. Okay. A little bit of Latin for everyone out there. There we go. Yeah. Um, yeah. So I, I've started my season reviews, and I realized that there was a lot to talk about. Um, so maybe we can talk about some of those topics right okay. now. Um, okay. So one of the things that I was majorly struck by in just kind of trying to sit and think about the state of the program is sort of what I was struck by um, in a certain sense with the Steve Alford era. Which is that, of course, the defense was bad. The defense was bad with UCLA this year. But even the thing that we think is good is also not very good, which is the offense. For Steve Alford, he produced, like, I think one top 20 offense, or maybe two, um, in his entire time at UCLA. And if you're going to be the, the offensive team or whatever, that thing's got to be good. And instead, UCLA fielded an offense this year that was actually at least in some areas, worse than last year. Well, in the rank, in the stat, in the advanced stats, it was worse. Absolutely. Right? Um, yeah. Now, some, some, in some elements of it, like points per drive and, and in a couple of efficiency metrics, they were marginally better than last year. But I would say in total, probably a little bit worse. I think eyeballing it too. I, I, I think, uh, you know, even stats are hard because it's going against different a difference in opponents too. You know, from year to year, um, really good offense. Obviously, uh, I mean, an offense could be a lot better, but statistically, be worse because the opponents were better. But I think most of us just using our eyeball test would come away from this season saying that this offense was slightly worse than that of last year. Yeah. 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 And, you know, when I was looking through the different reasons for it, um, primarily um, it comes down to the thing I wrote about today, which is a lack of explosive plays, um, which I, I think there's a plenty of different reasons for it. But the one that kind of stood out to me, especially when I'm watching other college football, is just the, the, the so few times that you see guys just running open. Like, there's just so many plays that look like they're just hard. Like, it looks like it's hard. Like, they, yeah. the guy catches the ball and is immediately tackled. Um, it's just, there seems like there's something just kind of missing schematically for me when I'm watching this scheme. Because efficiency-wise, they're middle of the pack, which should more or less correlate with them being middle of the pack and explosion, but they're not. They're way down at the bottom. Um, and I just... That's the thing. If, if you're going to be this type of offense, you need to hit some more explosive plays. And if you're going to make mistakes at quarterback, which Dorian Thompson Robinson made a ton of this year, he led the nation in individual turnovers, um, you have to have more explosive plays. You have to be able to make up for those with big plays. You can't just turn the ball over and then expect to run another 10 to 12 play drive. You just can't do it with consistency. And you tell, me, you tell me this because I don't have the stats to back this up, but when I watch college football, when I watch Alabama, Alabama, Auburn, those are, I mean, those are studs on defense, right? I mean, they've got, they go three deep with, you know, five-star guys. Yep. Did, did you watch that game? Oh, that yeah. Was, that was an explosive game. In college football today, no matter how good defenses are, offenses, I think, right now are kind of ahead of the defensive curve. I don't think how good of a defense you could probably put on the field would be able to stop the most 
explosive offenses in the country. And that, that game showed it right there. I mean, huge plays, one after another, just back and forth. And you wouldn't necessarily say that Auburn and Alabama, their schemes are made for explosiveness. It's just their players are, you know, are incredible. But college football right now is about explosive offensive plays. Yeah. And UCLA isn't. <laughs> well, I mean, look at look, uh, the best example of this is um, for me, Oklahoma, Georgia, and the Rose Bowl, uh, you know, in t- 2018, where. Oklahoma completely got Georgia to play their game. Um, and Oklahoma was able to put up 48 on a great Georgia defense. Now, right. Georgia won 54-48 because Oklahoma didn't play any defense. But that was an offensive game. It's not like right. Georgia forced them to play 20-17. to um, I think the, the truly elite offenses now are up. They're, you can't handle them. They're, they're built to disrupt you in many different ways. Um, and... And I guess, like, to to the larger point, is Chip Kelly's offense, like, is this the kind of offense that's ever going to do that to an elite defense? I think it's built, like you've said before, it will be a top 50 when everything's working right. And he's got some players who have some experience and some talent. And, you know, people are executing at a fairly high level. I think it will be a top 50 offense. Like you've said before, but I don't see the explosiveness, really, um, for a, for a few reasons. First, they they just don't stretch the field much, and maybe that's a matter of personnel. Maybe they feel they can't get the pass protection to do that, but they really don't stretch the field. There there isn't a lot of uh, yards after the catch where there were guys who would you know really make a lot out of just a short catch or, or, you know, a run. Dimitri Felton did in the first few games. Um, but it, it doesn't seem like it's built for explosiveness. It's built for kind of grinding it out, I think. W- wouldn't you say? Yeah, I, I think it's interesting to consider what they're trying to model themselves after. Um, and I think there have been a lot of theories kind of bandied about by it, bandied about, bandied about around it. That was tough to say, Tracy. I want to. I want to hear you try it again. No, I'm not going to do it. Um, okay. Everyone takes my meaning. Um, but I, I, it, it honestly reminds me of the bad Washington offense, which is still not bad, but the Washington offense from the last couple of years, where they're trying to be multiple. They're trying to do why. They're trying to kind of fit the right piece in to match up against a particular defense. Um, that's that's kind of been Chris Peterson's mo for a long time. He doesn't even really have a name for his offense. It's just kind of the you know I like these different plays against this type of offense and you just, this type of defense and you just kind of install it. And that's what this reminds me of the most is that kind of Washington offense. And that thing, like the one thing that like strikes me about that offense is, and this is one where it's got the guys at all the different positions. It's got the offensive line built up. It's got its quarterback. It's got you know some receiver talent. It's got good running backs. It just looks so damn hard. Like it looks like they're having to do so much to get five yards. Um, and then you watch an Oklahoma or you watch, hell, even USC this year. And okay, yeah, unsuccessful play, unsuccessful play, 25-yard play. Um, and maybe it's a little bit more boom or bust. Um, Oklahoma's really isn't, but USC's was this year. 
but the end result is that you're getting better offensive production. Um, and I ball control offense, I think in this era is just it's it's a path to take. I think if you have maybe if you are an under talented school, which you know Chip Kelly is rapidly turning UCLA into, um, but it's not the route I would have chosen. Um, I think you and I probably align on this, but um, simple. Simple offense. Simple offense that you can plug a guy in and almost immediately play him. Um, yeah, I think what it, I think a lot of it is, since we're if we're going to speculate a little, I think Chip Kelly's experience in the NFL has made him more of an NFL coach than a than a college coach. Yeah, I think this is very much a pro offense. Um, and he's, I think he believes that if he installs this and he does it right and efficiently. It will be something that college defenses are going to struggle to stop, and that that very well could be true. But this this whole argument goes way back to Carl Durrell and his West Coast offense that we used to talk about then. And I think you brought it up in your explosiveness story that is it really feasible for college players to be able to execute? a complicated uh, pro-style offense effectively and consistently. Can they do that? I mean, that's a big question. I think over the years we've all kind of come to the conclusion that it's really highly difficult. Um, And I think that's kind of what it's it's up against, uh, that what Chip Kelly's up against. But he seemed convinced, he seems convinced that he can do that. And maybe, you know, he's had vision before. He's been, he's, he's designed an offense that, you know, was innovative and worked. Maybe, maybe he's a visionary here too, and he can pull it off. If you look at the type of guys he is recruiting, they're smart, responsible kids who would probably have a better chance of pulling off this type of offense. But I think he's got history stacked against it yeah i agree and you know i I think i brought this up before but one of the one of my early warning signs about this offensive scheme was when one of the insider types on the board mentioned the size of the playbook um that chip kelly was installing as a good thing as a positive that it's got this many plays it's this thick like there's there's so much going on in there and that set off alarm bells because, like you just alluded to, that sounded like Carl Durrell to me. Like, that sounds like an NFL guy yeah. trying to install an NFL offense at the college level, which, um, in my learned experience, has literally never worked. Never. Um, from Bill Callahan at Nebraska to Carl Durrell to whoever you want to name. It just doesn't work because you don't have the time with the guys to actually teach him that. And the worst thing in the world is a simple pro-style offense. Like, that thing's not going to work either. Um, if you're going to go simple, you want to go college offense. You want to go something that's, you know, maybe some window dressing, but we're really talking eight to 12 plays. Um, and you know, that was the blur offense. I mean, and I'm not, I'm not even sitting here saying you got to run the blur, but just a like, this thing isn't really that hard. It's, you run a simple spread, you run it with some tempo. You're probably going to be a top 40 offense. If you've got UCLA's talent, that's just, you know, it's, Whatever. It, uh, the final years of Noel Mazzoni at UCLA were better than this. Um, and those weren't great years. 
Have you watched the Baltimore Ravens this year at all? Uh, with Lamar Jackson, where they're more or less running a college offense at the pro level? I, I, I've watched them twice, and, of course, Lamar Jackson. <laughs> I mean, he's, you know, he might be the MVP of the league. I don't know. But um, it, when I'm watching it, bells are going off in my mind that this looks like what Chip Kelly's trying to do with Dorian Thompson-Robinson. A little. I mean, incredibly talented quarterback who can execute at a very high level, but they're a run they're a running team. I mean, they run. I I don't I might have to look it up, but I think they're one of the best running teams in the NFL. And I would it, it looks so similar to me that I would bet that this is what he sees. He sees Dorian Thompson Robinson as Lamar Jackson with a pro offense that uses college type of concepts that's really working at the NFL level. But huh. still, even though it is a kind of a, it's a little bit kind of a college offense, it's still a complicated offense that yeah. you're te- that you're teaching pros. So I don't know. I, I, I think we've seen, we haven't seen, I'm sorry. We haven't seen that. The top end, we haven't seen the ceiling of Chip Kelly's offense at UCLA because, you know, you got to always say there's more potential as soon as he gets his, more of his guys in. They're coached up. They've been in the system for at least a few years. I get that. But I think we can, we can foresee the ceiling. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I and mean, I the, think, the, go ahead. Yeah. And I, and I just think that's, when you can see the limit of something right now, it's, I don't know, it's a little disappointing, I guess, just because we had some real high hopes for when Chip Kelly came in that, hey, we, UCLA is going to have this innovative, great offense that's going to put up a lot of points and is going to you know, be explosive all over the field. And I think it's kind of getting used to the fact that that's probably not going to happen, even if this offense is executing at a very high level. Yeah. And, you know, you look at it and, um, so this year it it regressed a little bit as we just discussed and next year. So it does, they do return a ton. Um, you know, as many as four starting offensive linemen from this year, um, obviously starting quarterback, assuming he, you know, holds onto the job. Um, and then, you know, most of that receiving core, um, you know, I guess we'll see if Devin Asiasi decides that he's ready to make the jump, but we'll see. Um, but they'll return most of the offensive production. If there is going to be a year where they are going to make a big leap, it would be next year. I'm really skeptical. Um, see, here's the thing though, and I'm sorry to interrupt, but I think you and I just have to have a moratorium on now of saying of having any kind of faith that there will be a leap. Yeah. Forward. Oh, for sure. And I, I'm not we, going into next year thinking that at all. Because we are Charlie Brown now. Oh yeah. We've held that ball down. I mean, we've approached it and Lucy's held that ball down and I don't think we can say that. And my and so just to maybe skip ahead just a little I am to the point now where at the end of this season comparatively when we were talking about comparing seasons last year, you have to admit really at three and nine, you came away from that season though, feeling more positive about the direction of the program. Oh, it I just, was bullish. 
throw out, throw out recruiting. But ending the season the way they did last year, I mean, by beating USC and just looking like Chip Kelly in that game, looking like he was just playing with them. And then playing Stanford so competitively to where you thought they could beat a decent Stanford team. In the offseason, we thought, you know, with a little leap of faith, they should all come back a little bit better because that's your assumption in college. Every Most players come back and they are a little bit better their, their next year. Yep. But that didn't happen this year. And then we fell into that hole again after that three-game winning streak. We thought, oh, well, this is what they did last year. They started out one and five then second half of the season. So we thought this was the beginning of that second half kind of turnaround. Yep. And it, and it wasn't. And a lot of it, while I'm on this point of those last of these last three games, a lot of it is about matchups. A lot of it is about timing of when you play the games. Like you said, you know, they ran into buzzsaws of Utah, which might be one of the best teams in the country. And then USC with its new offense and its talent at wide receiver and, and their quarterback was too talented for UCLA. For UCLA. Yeah. And, and then by Cal, I think they were just so deflated that they couldn't mount. And, and the defense was just kind of a mess not knowing what it was doing. So it is all about matchups. But you came away from the season – I think everyone's coming away from this season a lot more disappointed by far than last season. And we, we are all checking ourselves now that we shouldn't put, we should never say just with a little bit of improvement, they should be this much better because I think we've been burned a few times doing that. Agreed. And I don't, I'm not even really counting on them getting, I mean, I think they will be literally, I'm I'm thinking they're going to be a little bit better offensively, but I'd be I'd be kind of surprised if they end up like even a top thirty five offense next year. Oh, okay, see, I don't even want to go that far because you're losing Joshua Kelly. Yeah. If you took Joshua Kelly out of this offense this year, I, I don't think <laughs> I don't think they're even four and eight. I don't think there's any running back on on the roster who can give you what Joshua Kelly does, and they don't have him next year, and there's no clear guy who can fall into that role. Maybe Martel Irby. Uh, if Jamon, Jamon McClendon, the true freshman, was really good, we would have either seen him play. Like, if he if he were good enough that he were better than, or potentially better than Martel Irby, we would have seen him play this year. They would have wanted to get him some playing time. Yeah. And I haven't heard of anything I've heard, Dave, I haven't heard that He's blowing every away in practice. If anything, I've heard there's been it's been a little disappointing. So who played who? You know the JC guy that's coming in. <laughs> there are and obviously the way UCLA is recruiting, they know they need to replace Joshua Kelly, and they're out there with Jalen Berger and the other guy with the with the long name and the hyphen, and yeah. I don't know what his name is. And um, I do know. I'm just blanking. Sorry. Um, they're, they recognize that they need him. And I, I think, I think it's going to be incredibly hard to replace Joshua Kelly and his production and what he brings to this offense. And that's a vital element of that offense. 
that you have a really good running back. Pretty clearly. Pretty clearly. So, so it was, I'm stopping you right there when you said that, that you I, – I don't see him being better next year. I, I guess I, what I, I guess my main thing is I, they're not going to rise – my firm opinion is that they're not going to rise to the level that they actually need to, which is a top 35-ish offense that they would need to actually make up for what will still more than likely be a very bad defense next year. Yeah. I yeah I agree I guess I agree with that. Um, if the offense isn't if the offense isn't as good as it was this year, which I think is slightly questionable just because of the lack of Joshua Kelly, the defense is going to have to really make a big step forward. And it won't. I mean, uh, and this is the one I feel even stronger about. You don't replace. How how many seniors did they start at linebacker at one point or another this year, Tracy? Yeah, there were four. Uh, four is the four. answer that you're looking yeah. for. That was four, Dave. Yeah, four. Um, so how many then would they have to replace as, say, ostensible starters? That would be four. That would be four. And how many play on the field at any given time in a 3-4 defense? Uh, hold on. Four. Four. That's right. That's right. Um, so you have to replace Chris Barnes, who probably... By the end of the year, was something like their best player? I mean, at least beyond Osei Gazua. Somewhere I wouldn't even say by the end of the year. I'd say consistently. I, I, I personally see Chris Barnes' limitations, but I thought he was a good player over the last two years. Fine. Okay. I really did. Yeah, yeah, and that's totally fine. Um, and yeah. I think, yeah, I think that's totally fair. Um, you have to replace him. You have to replace still your best edge pass rusher, even though he didn't do a whole lot over the final three or four games of the year in Keyshawn Lucier South. Um, and then, you know, the contributions of Josh Woods and Lukeni Toaloa. Uh, that's not going to be easy, because if you watched any of the other guys playing in that unit, um, you know, Carl Jones, he's got some speed. I don't know that he's an every-down linebacker. Um, Lenny Toaloa, I, I don't know if he's an every-down linebacker. Bo, uh, Bo Calvert, in his last game, showed some great, like, sideline-to-sideline, side like, quickness of being able to cover a field but still needs to learn the position but was out of position vastly through that game and you got to give him you know you got to let him off the hook i mean he's thrown into the last but he has the potential he has the athleticism but man you got to think he's a long ways away so yeah that's the linebackers (laughs) (laughs) and this is the thing and and i'm gonna say that i was saving this but since you're on linebackers um, you always before had to figure in there was going to be a guy that they recruited that came in that was like a four-star guy, let's say. And he was, you know, fairly well-known. And then he was even better than that. And he got, he got on the, he's a true freshman and he's just, he's really talented. And he wins the starting position within like a few weeks. He's yeah. that good. The way Chip Kelly is recruiting, there aren't enough of those guys. No. And there are very rarely any guys that he's recruited on defense. The, the guys he recruited on defensive line had to play because there was no one else. Um, so, yeah, those are the guys that this is lacking. And they, they're recruiting fairly well. I don't know if I see anyone from the guys they're recruiting who will come in and have that big impact unless they do get Damian Sellers. But yeah. still, 
it's a big leap to think this true freshman is going to come in and be a huge force and make a big impact. That's just a stretch. So that's just that's just the linebackers. I mean, what if we talk about the secondary, which is, I think, the most probably head scratching element of this season. Yeah, and it, and that's the one where, like, from a I don't know a talent influx standpoint. I mean, you're talking about John Humphrey. No, yeah, and I really like John Humphrey as a prospect, but I don't think he comes in and immediately makes an impact because he's six one, maybe a little bit taller, but he's 175 pounds. Yeah, I mean, there's just and expecting and expecting raw. any non-elite true freshman to come in and just like immediately contribute in the secondary is like not easy. Darnay Holmes, as a true freshman, had real ups and downs, and that was a five-star elite athlete prospect. Um, I don't. You're not expecting that from John Humphrey. It's a rare, you know, this type of guy who's coming in and actually, you know, making a huge impact early. And then you look at the guys in the secondary, and who stood out to you as like a positive this year? Um, because well, I don't want to name all the negatives, but like, was there anybody who really stood out to you and you said, okay, that guy can really play? I like Jay Shaw for a little bit this year. Jay Shaw, and we're just talking secondary now. Just secondary. Um, no one really jumped out at me. I'd say Rayshad Williams has a chance to be a press corner, a press corner, uh, and and a fairly good one. Um, I I personally also think that uh, Stephen Blaylock is a good football player. I I think by the end of the, or even halfway through the season. He was so overwhelmed trying to make up for some a lack of talent around him, maybe kind of a a mess within the secondary on what they were actually doing in terms of their objectives and everyone being on the same page. But I, I think Stephen Blaylock is a good football player, but I'm I'm basically saying that really no one, I guess. Yeah. Um, so that's, you know, someone like someone and the guys who haven't played like William Nimmo, I I mean, they needed someone to step up as a safety. Uh, and if he were good enough, he would have, he would have played, you know? Um, so yeah, no, I don't have a lot of confidence I think you can really say losing a Darius Pickett, losing a talent like that, ha- created a big hole in that secondary. Yeah, and that but was not anticipated. Yeah. <laughs> I thought, yeah, because you were watching yeah. that watching that unit last year. All right, so Darnay Holmes, I thought had a great sophomore year. I thought yeah. Elijah Gates showed a lot of promise last year. Um, between those two guys, I was expecting both of them. And now Darnay, I think, had some. I think he had some lingering injury issues throughout most of the year. Like, just kind of watching him, he didn't look quite right. Uh, but Gates, the way he fell off, like, that was that was stunning to me. Because he was not... Uh, people, I think, are retroactively creating this idea that he wasn't good last year. But he was a much better player last year than he was this year. He was much better. Uh, and you and I have talked about this. And um, spending some time trying to analyze, like, what happened to the secondary. 
And uh, again, a lot of it is it's hard to draw big conclusions because so much of it is about matchups. I mean, Elijah Gates against USC's receivers, that's just not fair. No. You know? First off, so it is about matchups. And then secondly, there was such a – even conceding that Darnay Holmes was probably nursing an injury, um, the loss of Darius Pickett, the fall off in production and effectiveness with that secondary has – I think has to be attributed to – that they were just, they were probably given too much. I, they looked frozen, paralysis by analysis. By analysis. Yeah. They, they looked like they literally didn't, they were hesitant and did not know what they were doing. And I can only attribute that to maybe after last year, they tried to layer on more, some more sophisticated concepts uh, among the secondary and probably in the entire defense. And they just didn't stick. Yeah. And if we're, here we go. There, if this is true, this is an instance of where college players just don't get this sometimes. <laughs> you know, just can't get it sometimes. Yeah. Um, look at the course of the year. They, I mean, you tell me, Dave, did they play more zone at the beginning of the year? I think they were. Um, I think they were mixing. They were mixing a lot more at the beginning of the year. Like, my big takeaway from the beginning part of the year is that they were trying to do a lot of different things. Like, I didn't think yeah. they were purely passive. I thought they were doing a lot of different things. Um, and it just none of it looked good. None of it. They didn't play there zone were a lot well. Of break, they, they didn't there were a lot play of man well. Yeah. A they, lot of breakdowns in that. Yeah. yeah. And the way they would play zone, where they would just drop their corners, like, 15, 20 yards back as if they thought they were playing a slightly different coverage. It was just all very odd to watch. Um, so I, I, and this is the stuff, it's really hard to tell on a TV feed, like exactly what's going on in the secondary more than any other position on the field. But that was the big takeaway. It's just they looked so confused and the entire defense, and this is where I think it is right, that it probably, um, and I think Jason Harris said something about it um, towards the middle part of the year where the defense started to look good was, yeah, we were we were kind of overloaded with complexity early, and we simplified. Um, but they all were on their heels, just constantly on their heels, playing backwards, backpedaling constantly, the linebackers, the secondary. And so they weren't even tackling with authority, um, even beyond the playing aggressive, you know, blitzing or anything like that. They weren't, they weren't, they were literally like having to tackle guys while falling over backwards a lot. Right. Um, and yeah, that, that's, that's a sign of indecision. That's a sign of a lack of decisiveness, um, which is the same thing. Those are the same words. Um, but it's a sign of all those things, all those same words that I said over and over again. Um, it's just, you know, a defense that I think was overinstalled and then they did simplify things mid season. They did start, you know, kind of just playing that pure aggression style, which, and it, and it was also about matchups because, yeah, you can do that against Stanford with a freshman quarterback. You can do it against ASU with a fresh. There, they. It wasn't necessarily. I think that they said, "Oh, completely different." It was literally game plan by game plan that this is what we can do to be effective against this team yeah. that we're playing this week. Yeah, and I think I was partly reluctant to say that because I was maybe grasping at the straw there too. We grasp um, at straws to try to be positive. I understand. Yeah, look, I'm a. You, everyone knows me. I'm a positive guy. Um, <laughs> And I'm just always looking for that ray of sunshine. Uh, but yeah, no, when you're going against Jack West or that ASU offensive line or Steven Montez in his like fully realized state as a worse player than his true freshman year, yeah, you can go that super blitzing type of defense. And then they realized, I guess, that they didn't want to do that against Tyler Huntley. 
And, and then here's the other thing too. I, I mean, when you talk about like what kind of objective you have defensively, a lot of it comes down to, are you a one gap or a two gap defense? So I don't know if everyone kind of even knows what that means, but if you're a one gap defense, your, your front, your defensive line has one gap. Each individual has one gap to fill. It doesn't have to make a decision and your linebackers, your front seven are all know where they're supposed to be. And if they, execute it all the gaps should be filled um a two gap is literally assignments are that you have two gaps and you've got to kind of make a decision and in watching this defense this year it was hard for me to even determine whether they were running a one gap or a two gap at times um given the personnel that they had in two uh in the in the front seven uh, whether they had, you know, the bigger defensive tackle types or they had the smaller guys. And I, I think toward the end of Mora's tenure with that defense, every different unit was almost doing different things in terms of one gap and two gap. And that's kind of the way this felt too, to me. Yeah. Like they weren't all on the same page. It seemed like some guys are playing one gap and other guys are playing two gap. And you can't do that. I mean, you have to play your assignment or it all falls to crap. So I, I, this is leading to the fact that, uh, uh, like, what has to change on defense? Well, yeah. I think, I mean, I think fundamentally they need a, I mean, I'll, I'll, I'm fine saying it. They need a new defensive coordinator. Um, I would like them to bring in somebody who has proven experience um, running a good defense. I don't really, so you know me, I don't really have a preference what type of defense you run. Um, I know you're more, you know, you want the aggression and the blitzing and all that kind of stuff. I don't care. I, I really don't care. Um, and I think there's there's bodies on this team that I'm still like, look, that secondary, it's not as if every single one of those guys was wildly overrated. Like, you just, I, I have trouble with those claims that just, oh, all the players are bad. Well, okay, but is this the one team in the country where, okay, all the four stars are bad? Because I, I have a, a tough time with that. Yeah, so I, I'm, I, I'm of the belief that there is talent in this secondary, that a guy like Stephen Blaylock can be good. Um, but it's going to take, you know, an actual scheme and actual coaching that's going to put him in a position to succeed. Um, and right now I don't think Jerry Azanaro's scheme is doing that, um, or anywhere close to that. I think there's a lot of confusion in what they're doing defensively. So yeah, I mean, I think it's, it's time to bring in somebody new to figure that out. Um, and, uh, I think it remains to be seen what they're going to do, but I know you have preferences as to scheme. I, I, I just I kinda, really don't. Well, I, I, I do basically, I like to see more of an attacking style because I think any negative yard plays, that's what stops down drives. <laughs> um, it, if you put someone in any kind of second and long, third and long, that's what, that's more or less is what is going to make you stop a drive. But having said that, I've been advocating that just because for the longest time as a UCLA football fan, you're watching bend and not breaks that don't work. So please try something different because this isn't working. 
So that's why maybe I seem like I lean that way, even though I kind of do. But I am all for, I think your defensive scheme has to match your offensive scheme, too. So it has to be bad? <laughs> oh, oh, wow. Um, philosophically and tactically and strategically. I agree. And um, that's why I, I, I was a bigger fan of, um, like, when you want to go aggressive forcing turnovers and stuff when you're running the blur, I think that's a perfect fit. Um, just get your offense back on the field as soon as possible. Yep. With this one, I don't know. I mean, I think having a grinded out type defense that's playing like a better bend but don't break um, than what they were trying to do this year, I don't know. It kind of makes sense given what they're trying to do offensively. Yeah, that's what I'm saying. I would be up for it if it's a, more or less it's a successful defense. Yeah, just yep. stop running a bad one. And I'm kind of on the same page with you. Either kind of scheme or philosophy is great as long as it's successful. <laughs> I mean, let's just go with that. Our you know, prescription really funny. for the defense is please be better. Just be good. Um, <laughs> it's funny, too, that you bring up that three-star, four-star thing because in the middle of the Cal game, I tweeted something and someone responded, what, said something like, well, what do you expect? There isn't enough talent. These are all three-star guys. And in the middle of the game – while I'm tweeting and I'm taking notes for what the story I have to write, I go, oh, I got to do this. And I went back and looked. Eight of the 11 guys were four stars or better who were on the field. It's, that's the thing. Like, and that linebacker core, I mean, yes, I don't think it's an ideal world when you've got um, Lokeni and Barnes both in there at the same time. Because I think Barnes is like reasonably fast, but he's not your elite quickness inside linebacker. And then you've got Lokeni out there who's like a big hulking inside linebacker. And so that's not ideal. But even still, both of those dudes were four stars. Josh Woods was a four star. Keyshawn Luster South was a friggin' five star. Um, I didn't even count that. I only counted one five star. I Because I think Keyshawn... He might have got, dropped to a four star. Fell down to a four star. So I just gave that four star just to be conservative. But then you've got Darnay who's a five star. You've got Elijah Gates who's a four star. You've got Stephen Blaylock who's Blaylock a four star. Um, and then on the defensive line, I mean, I don't think there were, I think Tyler Manoa was. A Tyler Manoa there. was. Yeah. Um, but still that's a ton of talent. Look at Cal's offense, like compare it to what they were going against. And it's just like, look, when, when so many guys are not panning out according to their rankings, look, we've got data from all these years that in aggregate, in total, the rankings are right. Like, they're more or less really good at predicting who's going to end up a good player in the NFL and, and, or in college and beyond. Um, so we, we can operate with that assumption that, yes, there's going to be busts, but by and large, the rankings are right. So if you see a defense where the majority of the guys are four stars or better um, who are actually playing, and the defense is this bad, that's coaching. That's development right. at whatever level it's coaching. Whether it's development, the scheme, whatever you want to pick, it's coaching. Um, and that's – I don't know how you can watch, have watched football for as many years as many of us have and not come to that conclusion. Because you'll see it uh, – Jim Mora, his first year, when he brought in a good defensive staff, suddenly a bunch of guys who we had considered more or less jokers to that point became good um, or at least serviceable. Um, it's all coaching. And – I'm just going to throw this in here. Um, Aaron Maldonado. Mm -hmm. Did you did you watch him isolated at all on him during the Cal game? I mean, a little bit, not much. 
He's pretty good. <laughs> <laughs> He's going to be really good. Yeah. And that was a guy they wouldn't even touch because he didn't meet the measurable kind of thing. And now it seems like they're almost like back to going after guys like him. Of course, because they're desperate now. They well, didn't... it's also, I think they changed their philosophy a little. They realized they're, before they came in thinking, we need nose tackles. So those are guys are 340 pounds. And then we need six, six defensive ends and who are six, six. And will eventually when they get, you know, they'll end up being 270. And that's ideal. And that's what they ran at Oregon. And then they started to realize, wait, our most effective defensive lineman is Oso Digazua, who's six, two and 270. And if he's anything, he's a defensive end or inside the most as a three technique. So then I think they've turned around and they're going after guys like that. And so basic three technique guys or what, six two, you know, six one to six three and two hundred and ninety pounds. Yeah. Which is what Aaron Maldonado is. Yeah. Anyway. Um, then, yeah. So I guess overall we're saying we're relatively we're not I don't want to say this. I, like I wrote in that one story. I mean, this is this is counterproductive for me. Not to even generate a little bit of optimism. I, I mean, you know, but I guess, like I said, I can't do it in in good conscience. Um, yeah, I, I, I'm not greatly optimistic. No, I'm not either, and I'm not. And it's it's a function of a lot of different things. If there was a huge talent influx coming in or in development or whatever, I could yeah, not even then would I be talked into it, but I could at least like see the theory. Um, but there isn't. I mean, talking about Chip Kelly getting more of his guys in, well, I mean, are any of those guys really, I don't know, killing it out there right now? I mean, Kyle Phillips is pretty good. I'll give him that. Um, but I just, I'm not... I don't know. I, I mean, I, I watched Duke Clemens and Sean Ryan, and they're pretty good. And I think they're going to be good um, down the road. But the rest of that offensive line, the right side, not so great um, all year. And I'm just, I don't know. I'm flummoxed by the entire strategy at this point. Um, I, do, I do think you're right. I think they're kind of changing what they're looking for a little bit in uh, defensive players especially which is interesting. I'd almost rather they just stick with their plan and hope for the best um, because it's they've already gone so far down this path. Um, but yeah, I, I just, I'm, I am. Well, I think, I think in recruiting, it was a matter that they realized that what they were shooting for was absolutely, you know, un, unrealistic. It, you're not going to go out there and find who is the defensive end who played in the three, four at Oregon, who's six, seven and 275 pounds and a free. There were, uh, a few Canton Kamatule was one. Um, the guy who we're all trying to remember the name of right now. What's his name? What's his name? Oh, it's there. Oregon defensive end. Twenty. Uh, Armstead, right? Eric Armstead was one, and then there was also Dion Jordan, who was another one. Those guys were all freaks. Yeah. I mean, Eric Armstead. Is 6'8 and 275 pounds. Still would have been a better offensive tackle. Huff will tell you that to his dad. Absolutely. Absolutely. 
Um, oh, DeForest Buckner is the one we're really DeForest Buckner. Yeah. See, look at those. I mean, but that's three you, dudes. That's three dudes who were all like that. So I'm sure they thought, oh well, we can find these guys, and I think they went out and they went after tall six 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 seven. And they thought, you know, we're probably 230 pounds and we'll develop him into 275 pounds. But I think they they can't find those guys. <laughs> there well, aren't a lot of those guys to go out and find NFL guys who are kind of measurably freaks. It's especially freaks difficult. It's especially difficult when you don't recruit them hard for a long period of time. That would that would be another thing. Um, so and I gotta throw this out too, because I'm putting together this story. There are currently four players in the current players that are in the transfer portal right now. Uh, that's Theo Howard, Marcus Moore, uh, Noah Keeter, and Tyree Thompson. And from what I'm hearing, you can expect a good number more. And those, I, I, I mean, those will be Mora era guys, but I think there will also be some Kelly recruited guys in there too. Um, they could be upward of having 30-plus scholarships available um, for the 2020 school year. And the way they fill those will be really, really interesting because you'll have to have a couple of guys that came in uh, early this year count back against 2019. I don't even know how many of those counters they have available and then a couple, maybe gray shirt that count towards 2021. And then you have the APR issue that all those guys transferring have to transfer in good academic standing, which is a 2.6 GPA. Uh, I, there's, there are a lot of moving parts and it's, I don't know, uh, right now it's hard for us to even project how they're going to be because I think the personnel right now from what we have is is so is going to be different than what we have next August because of the transfer portal, because of the purge, because of a lot of things in the program that it, there's just a lot of fluidity here when it comes to personnel. Very tenuous. Um, and yeah, and if you look at, I, I mean, I, I wrote a thing I think in the off season about just like the attrition you can expect in a given off season. And it's like 10 dudes. Like, you can always expect 10 dudes to leave. Um, and building that into the calculation, I mean, there was no doubt, more or less, that they were going to have 30-plus this year. Um, which is why, going back to the spring, we were advocating them taking a ton of dudes and projecting to take a ton of dudes. And they're at 19 now. I think there's still a possibility they could uh, finish up and take a bunch of dudes. But um, we'll see. I think by the time they get through shopping in the transfer by the time they finish the 2020 class in February, they finish shopping in themselves in the transfer portal. It will be upward of 30 guys, 30 new people. Yeah. And that's a, that's a hell of a turnover your third year into the program when 35 guys have already left yeah. and maybe 10 more leave again. So you're going to have 45, maybe at least 40 plus approaching 45 players that left scholarship players I'm talking to that left under Chip Kelly in two and a half years. You mean none of those 67 freshmen, Tracy? <laughs> yeah. I wish you wouldn't say that. Those are all scholarship guys, right? Right? No. 
No? Does he say, I thought he said 87. He says 87 freshmen and sophomores. It includes 67 freshmen and 20 sophomores. It is the most misleading thing in the world because 33 of those 67 freshmen are walk-ons. None of the other classes have that percentage of walk-ons. It's just that freshman class because he overloaded on true freshman walk-ons this past cycle. He got a bunch of them into the program. Great. But that makes this whole statistic misleading. Like, a lot of programs only have 12 or 13 seniors. A lot of programs only have 20 juniors. Not many have 67 freshmen because they don't load up on 33 walk-on freshmen. Yes. Anyway, Anyway, that's my... That's my little soapbox. All right, I'm done talking about football. Can we talk a little basketball before we go? Oh, my gosh, please. Yes. All right. Um, So Maui was, you know, I thought it was illuminating in some ways. Um, I thought they were, you know, after watching the first two games, I thought they were more competitive against Michigan State than I was actually expecting. Um, Me too, absolutely. So that was actually good to see. Um, And, you know, they – Obviously, it's Chaminade. What can you say about Chaminade? Uh, I will say this. They looked better to me than San Jose State did, but still, it's Chaminade. Um, Absolutely better than... Yeah, no, they looked They looked like they were trying hard, which is not something I could say about the Spartans. Um, and we were talking about uh, variable <laughs> in performance. San Jose State looked like the worst team they've played, and they beat Hofstra. I beat UCLA. Yeah, yeah, that's early season. That's early season college basketball for you. Wow. Um, but um, I was in. I was encouraged by some of the things they did in that Chaminade game, um, in particular, you know, the Jaime Jaquez uh, emergence. Um, and uh, yeah, BYU was really bad. That was a really bad performance. Michigan State was quite a bit better, and then they came home and um, you know blew out San Jose State and looked pretty good doing it. Um, but I, I think it's going to be kind of fits and starts this year, but can we just, I don't know, talk for, I don't know, like an hour about Jaime Jaquez? We could do that. There, there, there are a lot of things that I could talk about with the basketball program and not just Jaquez. But first, here's my big, if I'm comparing programs, I have we were talking about having faith that people are going to improve and you would say, well, why don't you apply that to basketball too? If you're going to be consistent. Um, Mick Cronin has, uh, a philosophy tactics strategy that has proven to win on, on the college level. He's won at, what would you call Cincinnati? Would you call him a mid major? I, they're, they're somewhere in between. Mid-major plus, yeah. I'd say. Um, he's won at that level. He's, let's put it this way. With how he plays, he's gotten teams to overachieve. It's a proven way to play. What Chip Kelly is doing at UCLA is, is new. It, it, it is not proven. He's, tr- he's experimenting. So I can, I think, safely say I can see where this is going <clears throat> with, with Mick Cronin's program. Um, you see him layering in things and you can see if you watched Cincinnati at all before you can see what he's doing. You can see the building blocks that he's building towards that. And he is maybe, I mean, what block are we in? Maybe one right now? One, like one um, a, honestly, he just taught them to double the post. So one a, I mean, we just saw that against, that was the, I think that was the first <laughs> post double I've seen all year. How to trap out of a post. Yeah. 
and it, and it wasn't bad. I mean, yeah, it was a little, and, it was a little slow, like the first or second time, but then they, they forced at least one turnover out of it. Yeah. Yeah. So he's layering toward what he did at Cincinnati. So I see where that's going completely. Um, so that's why you see the basketball program and, and you, and you get it right. I mean, even though I guess we were getting a little optimistic going into Maui because we thought, wow, you know, they've gotten better. Looking back at it now, it's 100% completely understandable because really that first building block is just establishing a culture of playing hard. Yeah. Um, and he, these aren't his players. And they're coming from, they're coming from a – a previous program that didn't really emphasize that much. So this is, this is going to be a, a hard transition. And I think maybe we were just a little bit overly optimistic because it looked like it was kicking in fairly early there for a while. I mean, they were playing hard for 25 of 40 minutes in a couple of those games pre Maui. Yeah. But, um, but we see where this is going. And, I'm sorry. Just listening to Mick Cronin in an interview is just an absolute pleasure. It's such a joy dealing after dealing with um, uh, Chip and then uh, Steve Alford. Like listening to somebody actually like give a thoughtful answer to a question, and yeah. even sometimes be kind of snarky, but at least snarky and like a you know oh that was that's that's completely fine because it was charming kind of way. Hey. We and I, you and I talked about this. So we're on 100% on board with McCronin, obviously. There have been so many things that he's done that I, I've just come away saying, wow, he gets it. His staff gets it. They just get it. Uh, you and I talked after San Jose, after his interview. Yeah. And we have one quibble, don't we? we well, as about- you, listeners, as you know, we are um, mostly a David Singleton fan club. Is that, that's probably it, right? I, I would say that. Yeah. And, but I don't think it's, I don't think it's uh, in, uh, you know, undeserved. No, uh, no, no, no. He, we're, we're just He won us over based it, on what we saw him play last year. How right. we saw him play. Um, and I do think that there is, uh, I think they might be undervaluing him right now. And I think completely justifiably, because I don't think they've seen him play at full health. Um, but just watching him. Watching him play now, like just watching the games, um, he's not going to blow you away statistically, but a lot of the things that Cronin seemingly, seemingly prioritizes are there with Singleton, especially on the offensive end. Um, does not make mistakes, does not turn the ball over. Just start right there. Um, the guy is the second primary ball handler. I think you can make an argument it's one of Prince Ali, too, because um, they're having him bring up bring the ball up occasionally. But Singleton's at least second or third, and he is um, just behind Olesinski for second on the team in turnover percentage right now. That's, a, that's, that's pretty incredible stuff for your probably second-leading ball handler. Yeah. Um, what, what are you... Are you no, 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 please, talk? please, you talk. <laughs> I think... The issue, the slight little nitpicky issue that we had is our is his evaluation of David Singleton defensively, that he thought he couldn't, more or less, for 
extended minutes have Singleton and Tiger Campbell on the court at the same time because of defensive reasons. Yeah. Um, and you and I think that he might be, there might be a misevaluation of Singleton defensively there. And it might be due to that. They just don't, they haven't seen him enough. He came back. He was, he's not a hundred percent probably yet. He doesn't look like the same guy he was last year. And I'm sure he had a longer rehab than they thought he sh- that a lot of people thought he should have given his injury. He was never really a hundred percent in, he was cleared only shortly before the start of practice and cleared to clear to practice fully, but still not meaning that he's back to his same form. Um, and I, I'm going to dis, I think, and I made this big statement in a text to you. I think this team, one of the biggest elements for it, uh, uh, living up to its potential this season is David Singleton and Tiger Campbell being on the court at the same time because David Singleton will, Singleton will be able to play defense, I think, better than Prince Ali, and he will make far less mistakes on offense, and he brings the outside shooting element. He's the best outside shooter on the team. Yeah. So. I think slowly, maybe, I'm hoping, and I'm just hoping I'm right first, and then if I am, that they come around to realizing that David Singleton is a better defender than Prince Ali. Yeah, and I think part of it is they love, I mean, he loves that deflection stat, and Prince yeah. Ali, it, that's that's his game defensively. Um, he's not a great positional defender, um, loses focus a lot, but he can play passing lanes, he's got quick hands, um, so I think that's a big part of it. But, I mean, there's a you're not just replacing Prince Ali defensively. You're also replacing him offensively, which is, again, I think a major plus. Uh, yes, Prince Ali can create his own shot. It's often not a good shot that he's creating. Um, and he can take a lot of threes. He's not often making those threes. Um, he's leading the team in three points attempted right now. And he might be dead last in percentage. I think he is. Uh, um, it was. I think it was eighteen percent. Yeah. Of shooting threes. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, he, oh no, no, no. Come on, Tracy. Don't denigrate my man. He's, at, tw- he's at twenty. He's at twenty-one percent. Oh wow. Okay. When um, I checked, he's eighteen. He must have hit. Yeah. Shot. So he's. Um, I would. I would venture to say he is not a good offensive player. And if that's the reason you're playing him, I think you're kind of. Um, and I, I get it to an extent because there isn't a lot of shot creation on this team. Um, but it's not just shot creation. So much offense is based on dribble drive penetration too. That's what you need guys who can, who can do that to create your offense even. And I think, uh, you know, just from that standpoint of being able to get into a lane, Prince Ali is probably better. So I think that they, you know, you might see that as part, an element of the offense that you, that you need, or you just have, you know, outside shooters with no penetration and that cuts off a lot of your offense. But if you're playing Yaquez, he can do it a little bit. Are we just pronouncing his, diff- his last name different ways every time? It's Hawkes. Yeah. Hawkes. That's great. It's a cool name. It's really great. Um, but yeah. he can, he can do that a little bit. Um, I think Tiger Campbell can do it a little bit. Um, 
Singleton probably can't, um, or at least hasn't shown it yet. I think it'd be interesting to see him play more off the ball because we haven't, we haven't as of yet seen that a bunch. Um, you well, know, he ha- he's going in as the backup point guard, so he's not off the ball. Yeah, I mean, just in his career generally. We're not yeah. seeing it. We haven't seen it a bunch. There'll be a possession here or there where they'll have Ali bring the ball up the court or Bernard bring the ball up the court when Singleton's in there. Uh, but even still, he's mostly getting the ball once they cross half court, and he's getting it at the top of the key. Um, it was kind of cool against San Jose State when I think I tweeted out, yeah, um, we're not noticing David Singleton on offense at all because he's the backup. He's functioning as a backup point guard and distributing the ball. It'd be great if if he moved off the ball. They took a timeout. They moved him off the ball. He came around. He curled around a screen, caught it, and hit a three. Yeah, and, and so, yeah. but the thing is, even as the back, even as a point guard, like I'll just even throw this out there. He flows the ball well. Like he's not the creator that Campbell is. He's not gonna like break you down off the dribble and create like a you know great three point shot or whatever. But he doesn't. The ball does not stick to him. He flows it well, um, and he gets it around. Um, and he does the easy things. Like he'll do the kick ahead pass. Like he does easy stuff. He's not a pure point guard by any stretch of the imagination. But even playing that role, I mean, he has been a major plus. I think offensively every time he comes in because it steadies everybody. Um, this is an inexperienced offense that still everybody's trying to figure out their roles still because you know you lost all those volume guys from last year. Um, he's a steadying presence when you've got you know when they were especially early on in the season when they were prioritizing um, not only Ali but Bernard, um, two guys who are just just gonna bull rush the the hoop and try to you know create something for themselves. Singleton provided a steadying presence, and I think he could still do that. Um, I, I want to see him more at the two, but even playing point guard, um, I think he's fine for what this offense needs. Uh, I have two things off of what you just said. When did it become kind of trendy to use the word flow as a verb? I've now, you know, does this happen to you to where you don't ever see anything and suddenly you notice it? Like everyone's using. We need to unpack that. I don't think I've ever heard that until like two years ago. And now I hear it like every other day. Mm. And you just use the word flow. Like he flows the offense well. I've never heard that. Have you always heard that? And I just no, it's a relatively It's a relatively okay. new one for me. I believe yeah. language evolves. I, it does. It does. I just, I just want to make sure that there isn't some weird twilight zone of where all these no, words no, have no, no, been no. used this way and I just miss them. I like it because it's evocative. It, it, I think it, it tells, I like it too. I it, understand. It, it tells the story of what he's doing with the ball because he's not. He, he will not lead you in assists because he's not often making that critical pass, but he moves the ball. And right. so much of college basketball is just, just move the ball around and eventually you're going to get an open shot because defenses aren't that good. Um, and he does that. And here's my second part. I would like to see he and Tiger Campbell playing together on offense. And as you said, Campbell has more ability to penetrate and is, and is better in two ways. He's better at a pull-up. He's got a pretty nice little pull-up floater. And he's better at finding, drawing a, drawing a defender and, and passing and finding someone under the basket. And then you've got David Singleton, who would be out there ready for a kickout to hit a three. So... In the half-court offense, like maybe Tiger operating a little bit more shooting guard-esque and, and maybe driving the ball more while David Singleton is more perimeter shooter. Yeah. How's that sound? 
I can get talked into it. I think my ideal lineup is probably those two. Though, again, and I, I, I am you know, the biggest David Singleton stand. I could also be talked into the Singleton at the one and Campbell off the bench for now until he improves his defense. But yeah, um, those two. And then give me uh, Hawkes at the three. Give me Chris Smith as the small four. And then give me Jalen Hill. It'll be a lot of fun. Huh. See, I think I'm, I'm kind of... I, I can't watch Cody Riley play defense anymore. I can't watch yeah, him getting switched okay. onto perimeter players anymore. But I'll tell you this. In college basketball, there are very few post players. There are very few guys who can score in the post, and there are very few guys who can defend, defend the post. I get it. Can't watch it. He's a guy who, can, who actually can do that and has some post moves and has the ability and strength to score on the low block. That's really highly valuable. Can we get can we get him to throw in a rebound though? Yeah, he doesn't rebound enough for how big he is. No, I get that. Um. Anyway, uh, I while we're doing this, we're gonna put this up this afternoon, right? Sure. Uh, did you have you been watching the news? Oh, Clayton, this? my man, my man, Clay Helton, back for another round. <laughs> I like on uh, the 24-7 USC site when they put up a picture of Clay Helton. <laughs> go to the go to the site right now. It's him looking like dumbfounded. He always he's got a really unfortunate um, resting face. It must be they can't find a face other than the dumbfounded. You remember when we would take the stills of Neuheisel and you could never find one where he wasn't doing something weird with his lips? Yeah, like trying to get a still of him in a video was near impossible. Yeah, um, Helton, he's got that slack-jawed expression. He just he does not have a good resting face. Um, and so every photo of him just has that weird slack-jawed thing, unless he's like actually like pursed lips angry. This is such a bizarre time <laughs> in USC and UCLA football history. They refuse to, to take you. advantage of each other. They refuse. It's oh really neighborly. God. It's so Here, neighborly. I- I'm going to give you – no, 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 after you. No, you go first. No, you. I, I actually thought Jim Moore in the first three years, oh, take advantage of USC being horribly down, which he kind of did for those first three years, and then that crashed. Then he hired Chip Kelly. Oh, you still is going to take advantage of USC having – well, you'll disagree with me that having a deficit at coaching Clay Helton. No, no, I'm, he's my boy. You're, I think he's you're a, a big Clay Helton fan. Pack and you have to maintain. Year, baby. Yeah, yeah. Do people still really believe you're saying that on Twitter? No. Do they well, really so, buy into that so trolling? The, the funniest thing is that Ryan uh, will retweet me, and then I'll get all these USC fans who don't know me responding to me as if I'm A, sincere, or B, another USC fan. And then I get to just continuously just troll them back, like with, no, why I think... Does, why does Ryan do that? I, I think he likes it. I think he likes that that happens every time because he's a okay, little bit of a sadist. That's uh, really funny, though. But, but funny. I'll, I'll then do that, and it's great because I get to trot out, like, all of the, like, arguments that, like, UCLA fans have made over the years for retaining an underperforming coach. But I get to treat them as sincere, I'm like, but he's playing with a true freshman quarterback, notwithstanding true freshman quarterback is maybe like the third best player on their offense, but he's playing a true freshman at quarterback. What are you supposed to do? How can he, how can he be expected to win more than eight games? It's beautiful. I love it. And then, so Clay Helton's returning to USC next season. And the other story is that the offensive coordinator, Graham Harrell, 
is a major target, I think, for Texas and maybe other Texan Texas schools. Oh, and Texas will pay three million dollars for him. He's he's going. He's got to go because <laughs> Tom well, Herman has to fix he, that thing. Even not for the you've. I mean, we've had this theory is that given the state of USC, the entire university, it'd be it'd be just far really controversial for them to hire an Urban Meyer, or to, or just to go out and pay ten million dollars for a James Franklin. Um, this year, let's say, they would have been forced to do it. What did what did Clay Helen start out this year? Three and three, something like that. Might have been two and, and three. Then he won five in a row or something. Yeah. I don't know. Um, if he had continued and had played 500 ball, yeah, I mean, they would have had to. But given this, they that gave them the opportunity to bring him back, get out from under all this bad PR right now, keep him for one more year. Um, and then maybe the PR has died down, hopefully, <laughs> for USC fans. And then they go out and find someone next year. So, I mean, that's kind of what we've – well, I mean, I think I wrote that on our message board one time. But there – I mean, Harold leaving kind of just makes – for USC fans, would make that this next year even more torturous by far on top of just – even if they buy into that, the fact that they have to tolerate Clay Holton for another year. Have you read that, that forum, that message board? Oh, it's, it's, it's a glorious thing. Even so not good. from being a UCLA fan and taking any kind of you know shading for it from that, it, it's it's brilliant stuff. It's oh, pretty- it's the the ang- the the way they are expressing their anger, I think, is like an honestly beautiful thing. I yeah. really enjoy. And it. then on top of it, with UCLA being in the state that it's in <laughs> at the same time, oh my God, this is just a what, what a time to be alive. Confederacy of dunces. I oh guess. man, yeah, and. Um, yeah, so not great. So, I mean, what? How? Let's let me ask you this: How do you think this impacts UCLA that USC retained Clay Helton? Not one iota, because I don't think anyone's in place to take advantage of it. There you go. The so it is that, impacting it because, in any natural state, it should impact it. Yeah, it impacts it by not impacting it. Like the right. the the reality that it won't impact UCLA is, I think, damning for UCLA because they if, don't even recruit the same recruits. Like they don't. Let's say if UCLA had gone seven and five this year, would it have been able to take more advantage of this in recruiting? I would, have to, I, I would have to imagine. Like looking at the way, like if they'd won, basically that would have meant winning three straight at the end of the year too. Yeah. Um, that would be. I, I think they'd be the talk of. Not quite the country, but close to it. If they'd closed out six and zero down the stretch, um, beating it, a top ten Utah team in there, yeah, no, they, they'd have a bunch of people knocking on their door to come to come to UCLA, whether they were recruiting them or not. Well, not necessarily that. I mean, a big a big news story would be if they had beaten SC, but I mean Utah. But let's say they had just beaten Arizona and then beat SC and beat Cal, and they're at seven and five, right? Yeah. So. I mean, and with every single story that would have been written about Clay Helton being retained, it also would have been said. And across town, the UCLA program is has righted the ship at seven and five with Chip Kelly. Yeah. But instead, opportunity massively lost. Yeah, you'd have to say. 
Yeah, but the reality is, it's not even a, it's not even about that. It's it's not like UCLA is like poised for a good season next year, and it's just like a missed. You know, they they were a year late. What whoever USC had as the head coach, it doesn't like it fundamentally doesn't matter because UCLA can't get its own crap together. Um, and it like the the competitive imbalance doesn't even really matter until UCLA can beat Arizona. Because um, look, it's a, it's a this is the lowest point for UCLA football that I can remember, which is the last I, twenty plus years. Um, but lowest since I've been doing this job since Bro's been around. Like UCLA, I mean, they lost at home to Oregon State this year. Um, yeah. They lost to a bad Arizona team. Uh, a bad Arizona lost, team playing its backup quarterback. They lost to San Diego State for the first time in their history. Yeah, it's, it's, they're, it's at its lowest point. It's not competitive with USC. Like, it can't even really get to that level. A, a USC team that is reeling from having a horrible head coach, and they can't even get to that level. No, this is... the. UCLA is mired in the dumps. The least we can do is just take a little bit of pleasure in that USC is not taking advantage of it. Um, but no, they're, so, they're, but, they're far away from taking any advantage of UC, USC for a very long time. Um, so when, when just being an, an observer of USC, and as you're establishing, not in how it impacts UCLA really, but just as, as uh, you know, eating popcorn and, and watching the entertainment. Sure. Retaining Clay Helton, does that – there were probably a lot of recruits that were waiting to see what would happen. Does that make – does that boost USC's recruiting or, or hurt it? I think it'll – well, it's, it's, it'll boost it, but will it have boosted it more than saying hiring Urban Meyer would have? No. Um, I think no matter, what, point, no matter what yeah. came out, it would have been boosted. Um, I think this is the least boost that will come from it, but I think there will still be a boost because there are a lot of guys who are like, oh, you know, the, the position isn't stable there, so I'm going to wait and see. Now it is stable. It's still USC. You know, these guys still apparently grew up watching Reggie Bush when they were in the womb. Um, so they're going to go. Um, and I, I would think they'll probably bounce up into the, what are they now, 70, something like that in the recruiting rankings? I haven't checked lately, but that's last time I checked. That's what they were. I mean, I, I would be stunned if they didn't end up top forty. Um, top forty is a disappointing class. That's horrible for them, but I think that's still going to be a big step up from where they are right now. And then, in in relation to how it does impact, the one place I see it de- impacting is Jack Yeri, the the tight end who's obviously the USC legacy, who. Um, was committed to USC, decommitted, and then for a couple of reasons, because of the the you know instability considering uh, the USC coaching staff, but also that ain't an offense for a tight end. So he looks across town, and that, <laughs> I mean, if, it, say whatever are, you will about it. It's say an whatever offense you for will a tight about end. it. Uh, there are four guys sometimes <laughs> playing at one time. Um, that that O five personnel looks going to be really sweet when he finally breaks it out. <laughs> <laughs> uh, who's where are they snapping the ball in an o, in an 05 well that's that's still coming to the quarterback you're still getting the quarterback okay. you've just got five oh, tight ends and five I'm offensive you're, linemen you're right but how I, yeah i'm thinking they're going to the point where they try to line up without a quarterback yeah no they just and, throw a tight guess, end back there too I guess. but if a tight yeah. end takes the snap is he really a tight end anymore that's the question tracy that's what you've got to <laughs> ask yourself i think he still inherently is yeah so 
maybe that's Jack Erie is seeing is seeing that he could be taking snaps. <laughs> maybe he is. Maybe he realizes. <laughs> oh, uh, so what a time. What a time to be alive. It really is. And I there are probably there I mean, we haven't even talked about the major shock from this week that literally every insider I know who knows Pac-12 football said I did not see this coming. And that was Chris Peterson's resignation. Yeah. Yeah. That's a, wow. It's a pretty mind-blowing one. Mind-blowing and how that how does that affect the whole power dynamic of, of the Pac-12? I mean, I think they'll they'll have some continuity for a year. It could be good. I mean, it could be good for Washington. Um, Peterson if you if you now look at the last two years in the lens of the head coach was burned out, uh, it makes a lot more sense. Um, the complete lack of offensive innovation, despite having probably the second most talent in the Pac-12 right now. Um, if Jimmy Lake, who's you know a energetic defensive you know forty two year old guy, if he makes some changes offensively and brings in not a Graham Harrell type, but brings in somebody with an innovative scheme. I mean, they might go gangbusters next year because there's a lot of guys returning. Yeah, that, that's a really interesting scenario because a lot of you know people are saying, "Oh, Chris Peterson's leaving Washington," and they're anticipating that Washington would fall off. But if you're a casual observer and you don't know, Jimmy Lake is a well-respected guy. Yeah, <laughs> um, and well-respected for what he did on on uh, with Washington's defense. I think he is he co-defensive coordinator, but either way. Respected as a coach. And then secondly, in recruiting circles, considered a recruiting wizard. Yep. Like, if UCLA were ever going to replace, uh, be looking for a new coach, he would have been toward the top of my list among some guy. if you had to get down to a guy who had never been a head coach before. Yeah. Um, and then what you said is uh, he's not necessarily going to be married to Chris Peterson's offense. Yeah. So he can go out and find maybe not this you wouldn't think he'd make that change, right? He'll he'll leave that offensive scheme intact at least for this upcoming year. Why would you he? think? No, why well, would he? I, okay. I, I think I, I think there'll be changes made. I think there's a lot of consternation about how that offense looked this year. Um and I think they are an innovative scheme away from being right back in the national title conversation because the talent is finally there. It wasn't really there in twenty sixteen. They've got a lot of dudes on that team now. Um so it's there. They just need they need an innovative scheme and right now they're running basically Chris Peterson's offense from two thousand seven. Um and they just they can't keep doing that. I mean it, it was they they had such a struggle putting up points on like Colorado this year. They just can't right. run that thing anymore. And here's here's the major test of we of a head coach that we have come to know so many times over and over and over again. When you make hires, are you going to go out of your comfort zone and try to find a coordinator or a coach that you know is really good that you don't have a connection to and you're not friends with. My man Clay did it. Clay did do it. Give him, give him, you need to give him. My, my boy. You need to Clay give him massive credit I on will. Twitter. Of course for I will. That, for going out and getting, he hum- did he have any he connection hum- to Harold at all? No, he humbled himself. That's just yeah. incredible. It's funny because that is what almost all coaches do. 
they go out and they find a friend. And a lot of times it's also because they don't want to look over their shoulder. It's also insecurity. Yeah. Uh, just not doing a friend, you know, a solid. So who Jimmy Lake goes out and if he does hire a new offensive coordinator and decides to really push that envelope, I mean, maybe he has a friend who's actually an innovative offense. You know, we got to consider that too. You know, he might actually have a smart friend. <laughs> maybe. Maybe. So the – Again, we're just piling on the Pac-12 football is is just a crazy place. It's a wild and, time. And what if Mike Leach actually leaves? What if Utah goes to a playoff? What if Kyle – that is amazing if they go. I think they're going to do a lot better than – I think they're underrated. Oh, yeah. I think I, – I, I don't – so here's the problem is I think um, Ohio State's going to smash anybody. Um, but you put Utah, I don't know, against LSU or Clemson. Could be interesting. Ohio State's going to murder everybody and win the title. But the other So two? shouldn't, shouldn't, now you know this far, I'm asking you legitimately this question. Doesn't Utah have a really good chance of getting in there now that Auburn beat Alabama? I think so. Um, okay. So Oklahoma, I think it'll come down to if Oklahoma smashes Baylor and Utah just squeaks by Oregon, then I could see Oklahoma jumping them. I don't think they're going to want to leave the Pac-12 out again. Um, I don't think so either. And I think yeah. they're setting it up to have justifiable reasons to keep Oregon or to keep Utah in. Um, so I, I think it's I, I think Utah would it would behoove them to really make a statement and beat Oregon pretty bad, which I think they're capable of doing. Um, but I think they just need to win semi comfortably and make sure that Oklahoma doesn't blow out Baylor. That it's a competitive game between Oklahoma and Baylor again. And then there's, you know, in little, some circles that I talk with certain people, there's always, there's been speculation, Kyle Whittingham, if he put together one big time season, he, he could retire himself. Damn, we're going to have a bunch of Utah fans now. No, and Utah fans get ornery. I'm not even, I'm I'm not even going to comment on that one. So just take that back. I'm, uh, that's not true. No, Utah, Utah fans, they, they, they bring some fire. Um, Yeah. So that's not true. He'll never retire. He's Yeah, so if you if you are rooting for the Pac-12, the big game that you actually need to watch that's not Utah-Oregon is um, actually Georgia-LSU. Because if Georgia beats LSU, then the Pac-12 is probably stoned, and so is the Big 12. Right. Right. Where is that game? At LSU or at Georgia? It's uh SEC title game in Oh, Atlanta. SEC title. Yeah, right. in Atlanta. Oh, Dave. You going to go? No, oh, God, no. God, no. Why not? I don't That'd be fun. I, no, I'm I'm kind of live sports. Eh, I watch them on TV. That's fine. Yeah, but when you have like, this sounds really disparaging to someone the the program we know. But when you have real programs like that are really winning, if it and was, have a lot of energy, well, if that's it kind was, of fun, right? If it was at Georgia or at LSU, I would do it because um, I want to. You know, I want to see those. I want to do that yeah. whole thing at some point. Um, but in Atlanta. Oh, who cares? I don't care. Okay. Well, it's close, though. So, but okay, be that way. Yeah, I am that way. <laughs> okay, I'm done. I'm so done. All right, well, for Tracy Pearson, I'm David Woods. Hope you guys were overjoyed by our ebullience today, and we'll talk to you again next time. Love you guys. <laughs>